You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Jason Fitz flying solo. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests, we got some great ones, will join us on the Goodyear Hotline. I'll get you started before we get to my big NBA thoughts. I want to get everybody an update. The Masters is underway. Obviously, a bunch of you paying a lot of attention to the Masters. And there's been quite a significant story. Uh, Justin Rose is sitting atop the leaderboard right now. He is seven under. Uh, the significance of that is... After seven holes, he was two over. So incredible turnaround that he was two over after seven, and he finds himself now finishing his first round seven under, currently sitting with the four-stroke lead at the top of the leaderboard. So that's what's going on in Augusta. We'll continue to keep you updated. Not a great day so far for big names that everybody's been watching into this tournament and big names that we've been talking about the last few days that could come in and make a run and sort of steal the stories across the landscape for the Masters. We'll see if that changes as the day progresses. In the meantime, let's get to some straight talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. The Lakers are no good. Now, obviously, that's today. The Lakers are no good without Anthony Davis and LeBron James. There's a lot of teams that you take their two best players away. They're not going to be very good. I realize Brooklyn is saying, hold my beer. We can never seem to get our big three on the court. And believe me, I know what I said yesterday. Yesterday, I sat there and I told you guys that at some point, we have to let the the Nets' lack of chemistry and continuity matter, right? So today, I'm going to call out my own hypocrisy. I felt like yesterday, going into it as I kept looking at it, I kept justifying the Western Conference. I kept saying, hey guys, don't worry about anything in the West because AD and LeBron will be healthy, and when that happens, then all of a sudden we will stop talking about anything other than the Lakers making their return to the NBA Finals. Now that that might be the case. I mean, that might be the case, and it's a, it's a fun, altruistic way to look at it. But you also have to ask yourself, what's it going to take for us to start to pay attention to other teams that are doing great things in the West. This isn't one of those years where there's nothing else out there. This isn't one of those years where you can look at the West and say, ah, not a lot of teams that can actually contend. Nobody else seems to have it put together. In fact, I'd argue this is a year where you're looking at the West and saying, holy cow, while we weren't paying attention, a bunch of teams got really good. How many of you guys were really focused on Phoenix suddenly making a rise? Phoenix is 36 and 14 right now, y'all. 36 and 14. That's good. They've won seven straight. That's also good. Hell, the Jazz have lost two straight, and they're still better than that. The Jazz are the best team in the West. They're 38 and 13. They got 38 and 13. And what's happening to the Lakers right now? The Lakers are free falling. Now, yeah, they won their last game, but they're four and six in their last 10. They're decimated by injuries, and they find themselves sitting right now a game and a half ahead of the Trailblazers in the five seed. The Lakers have to be looking at the future saying, if we don't get healthy, we might find ourselves in the play-in. The play-in tournament, remembering this year, for the first time, if you uh, finish out of the top seven, there is a play-in tournament to figure out who's going to get that coveted seat, right? So who's going to get their way into the playoffs? The Lakers don't want any of that, but they may not have a choice. As bad as things are going. And it's not like the teams behind them, the Trailblazers, the Mavericks, don't have a lot of talent, and they don't have to slip that far, just a few games, and suddenly they're going to be into the play-in. But that's what's crazy about all of this. We are so convinced that it's going to be easy for the Lakers once LeBron and AD gets back, myself included, that it raises a real question of what's the point for everybody else? I mean, think about it. 
Stephen A. You know I love Stephen A. Stephen A. knows more about the NBA than many, many people. And he was on KJNZ this morning and was asked how concerned he'd be about the Lakers' freefall. You know better than to ask me a question like that. And here's why. Because you know basketball better than most. We're talking about LeBron James. Now, if there's anybody else, you got a valid point. But when it comes to LeBron James, you don't have to be worried about who the competition is going to be in the first or second round if this dude is 100% healthy. And that's what it is. If it's anybody else, all of those things you say come into play. But not when it comes to him. He has proven throughout his illustrious career that that is not a concern that you should have. And I agree with Keyshawn, if LeBron and them are healthy, it don't matter who they play in those first couple of rounds. It really doesn't. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. Think about what Stephen A. just said. And I don't disagree with it. I, I, I find myself putting myself in those shoes all the time saying, hey, as long as LeBron and AD are healthy, their best two are better than anybody else. But you really want to tell me this is what he's saying. It doesn't matter who their competition is. All right, let's play this thing out. The Lakers find themselves in the play-in tournament, and all of a sudden, they win that play-in tournament, and they get the right because of it. Let's say they find themselves playing the Jazz in the first round. You're going to bet your house on the number one seed in the entire Western Conference going down to the Lakers if it's free-falling to that point? Like, that's not an easy bet to make. That's not an easy conversation to have because then you got to actually put the logic of how good the Jazz have been throughout the course of the season against the Lakers, who at that point will have a LeBron and AD that are coming off of an injury and uh, may have their own rust issues. I mean, that's what we're talking about. And if that is what we're talking about, then what's the point? Like, what's the point of any of this? I understand that we are so playoff crazed that all we want to think about is success in the playoffs, and that's why we refuse to say the words Giannis Antetokounmpo this year because we just don't want to be Charlie Brown going after the football yet again. You don't want to be running up to kick something and saying, oh, this time it's going to work out, only to find out that it's not going to work out this time, and yet again, you've fallen for the same trick. But in this situation, if you're looking at it telling me that a 38-13 and 13 Jazz team would be an underdog in your mind to a Lakers team that may barely squeak into the playoffs because of injury, then why do we even have a regular season? One of the things I said uh, yesterday, when you look at the 25-under-25 list in the NBA, you see so much young talent. And it's, it's really inspiring. And we'll talk tonight a lot about some of the things that makes the NBA great right now compared to other sports. Some of the issues they don't have because they have great talent with great personality. They have that sort of combination of everything. But 25 under 25 is not equaling huge numbers of wins. And at some point, that's a problem I think the NBA is going to have to fix. But the other problem is, at some point, if you look at regular season success as completely irrelevant, if all the Lakers really have to do is get the eight seed and everybody still knows they're going to win it all, then what's the point of playing a regular season anymore? And if I ran a team, I'd start looking around saying, hey, if Brooklyn can get by with seven games where they have their their big three together, as we talked about yesterday, and the Lakers can get by with just sort of coasting their way into the playoffs, why are you playing anybody? Why are you not just resting everybody every single night? The NBA is constantly at this crossroads, and it's easy for us to have deep conversations about how you fix sports, and I know that we do that a lot. But at some point, around the NBA, they're going to have to look at the issues they have with the devaluation of the regular season and ask themselves if they've created a situation that really rewards the best team. And if they're not creating a situation that allows the best team in the league to win championships, 
then there's a real problem. And frankly, if I ran a franchise today, the answer is simple. If I can run a franchise and build it the right way, or I can go out and buy every single megastar and go for one championship, I'm doing the megastar path because the answer is simple to what works. Just ask yourself the question, if the Jazz played the Lakers healthy in a seven-game series today, who you take it? It tells you the answer of what's really important for NBA franchises as they build moving forward. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. I'm excited to hop over to the Goodyear hotline uh, right away because we're joined by June Lee, Major League Baseball writer. He's got an article available now on ESPN.com that I found myself reading today and smiling because we spend so much time talking about the problems with baseball. But the article is titled Unwritten Rules Are Made to Be Broken, How a New Generation of Players is Shifting Major League Baseball's Culture. June, thanks so much for the time, and I appreciate you joining us. And it really is an interesting deep dive, your article, about the young generation that's rising and the way they see sort of the unwritten rules. So when you dove into this, how much resistance is there in your mind for these this young generation compared to some of the athletes that have been playing baseball a long time that may not see it the same way? Yeah, I think it's kind of a push and pull dynamic where you see things like, you know, Fernando Tetis bat-flipping in the playoffs. And then on the flip side, you see that bench-clearing brawl the other day where Nick Castellanos, you know, flexes over the plate and the Cardinals take offense to that and the bench is clear. And so this isn't a linear thing. I think it's a thing that goes up and down. And every single time someone pushes the line a, a little bit further, uh, it kind of pushes the boundaries of what can happen on a baseball field. Uh, and I think a lot of these young players are starting to get to the point where, you know, young players are kind of free to show their personality on the baseball field in a way that I don't think has been true for generations past. Guys are, you know, wearing chains and, you know, have flashy cleats. And that was a thing that used to be reserved for kind of established veterans. And now guys are coming up from the minor leagues and they're given the kind of leeway to truly be themselves in a way that I don't think has been true for generations past. And so we're seeing this kind of slow evolution. But I think last year, you know, Fernando Tatis's kind of situation where he hit a grand slam on a 3-0 pitch and Jace Tingler criticized him initially before kind of walking it back. And then in the playoffs when Tatis eventually bat flipped and Tingler then praises uh, Tatis in that moment, it kind of shows this kind of rapid cultural change I think is happening across the sport. We're talking to June Lee on Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz flying solo. And so stick with me here, June, because to me, this is really interesting. You know, I work a lot in different platforms for the company. And so uh, you do sort of learn that different generations see things differently. Like when I host SportsCenter on Snap, the way they want highlights given to them is much different than the conversations that we want on radio, right? It feels like the young generation as they're rising uh, appreciates more personality and social media has connected it. So how much does seeing other sports and seeing other young athletes being able to come out and have their and have their fun sort of impact young baseball players as they rise. Yeah, I kind of view it as baseball having procrastinated on kind of fast forwarding into the age of the internet where you know, individuality, especially among people my age, I'm 25 years old, it's, it is rewarded on social media. It is incentivized because in order to get likes on Instagram or Twitter or whatever, you have to kind of have a strong sense of self and figure out who you are as a person and what makes you different from other people. And so you know, that's kind of a double-edged sword, but I think it's just generally true of people who have grown up on the Internet and on social media for better or for worse. Uh, and I think we're starting to see that baseball is leaning into what makes it different, which is kind of the multicultural aspect, the fact that you have people from all around the world, from different cultures playing the sport, and that – having kind of this like wide variety of, of playing styles is ultimately good for the game and helps it market it, especially to the young generation. 
Yeah, that's really interesting, June. I never thought about the cultural part because of the global aspect of the sport, but you're right. Like things that you're allowed, you know, when I was in the music business, things you're allowed to do in Europe at a concert are different than things you're allowed to do in Japan at a concert. Like they're, they're all handled very differently and you have to be aware. So how much does that sort of, when you start talking about cultural differences for young players coming up, does that bring them together or does that make everybody more cautious to show themselves? I think, well, I think now it's people are feeling kind of more free to be themselves on the baseball field. I think you kind of see this embodied at events like the World Baseball Classic where you can kind of see just very in your face the different ways that different countries cheer and root for baseball. You know, a lot of the Latin American countries, they're singing, there's dancing. Uh, you know, in Korea and Japan, they're singing. Uh, there's uh, kind of coordinated cheering. And America, America is the most boring of the group. They're kind of quiet and they watch it. Um, and I think uh, we're starting to see kind of baseball as a, as a sport embrace the fact that there is a diversity in how people approach the game, whether they are from uh, Latin America or they're black Americans or they're Asian uh, or they're white. You know, there's a definitely a variety among how white players also approach the game as well. And so, you know, a couple of years ago, Mike Trout and Bryce Harper, the two guys that the sport was marketing as kind of the face of the sport. And now I think we're starting to see kind of a wider range of guys different personalities, guys, guys like Mookie Betts, Francisco Lindor, Fernando Tatis, Juan Soto, Ronald Acuna Jr., and then obviously guys like Trout and Harper as well. And so um, I think baseball is starting to realize that from a, just a financial perspective, from a marketing perspective, to get young fans interested in the sport, uh, it is good to have kind of this wide variety of personalities so fans can mostly invest in whoever they relate to the most. We're talking to Major League Baseball writer June Lee on Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Typically, Jason Fitz flying solo right now. And, uh, I, you know, you're, you mentioned Major League Baseball's embracing, embracing of it. Your article talks about social media in Major League Baseball particularly. I mean, as you start talking about great personalities, to me that feels like great marketing opportunity. Is the league behind the scenes, in your mind, making an effort to get essentially younger in their presentation as well and involving social media with that? Yeah, in the last couple of years, the league has made kind of a very concerted effort to kind of open up social media as a way that uh, as a thing that they shouldn't be afraid of anymore. So this is program. Uh, there's an app called Greenfly that lots of Major League Baseball players have, and people within the Major League Baseball offices design you know graphics for them to post on Instagram. They post their highlights in there, so it's much easily accessible for a lot of these baseball players to kind of showcase their personalities, put up, put their highlights on social media. Uh, and so there used to be this kind of culture of fear around social media, I think in baseball, especially because there was this idea that, you know, self-promotion uh, didn't really fit in within the clubhouse culture of the sport. But now I think we're getting to a place where folks are realizing that going viral on Twitter uh, isn't, you know, it, it isn't this like self-centered self-promotion thing. It's actually a way to have, to kind of promote the team uh, and a sport uh, as a whole and, and try to capture kind of more casual fans by like, going viral on Twitter or on Instagram. And I'm the first to admit, June, that I'm one of those casual fans. Like, I didn't grow up a big baseball guy. So, like, I find myself interested in the Padres this year, not just because they're going to be good, but because they have personality in everything they're doing. I think there's a lot of people like me that are, are craving the stories that will make us want to continue to just invest in uh, the, the players that play the game. It's, it's a smart strategy in my mind for Major League Baseball. I will ask you a Major League Baseball question as our MLB writer extraordinaire. Uh, with all the baseball you've seen early on in the season, uh, I've been asking a lot of baseball guys this. Is there a trend you see early in what's going to be a very weird season given the way last year went and now? Is there, is there a trend that surprises you so far early in this season? 
I mean, I, I don't know. It's a little bit too early for me to, to point out a specific trend. I think what I'm most forward to kind of seeing play out is how teams treat their pitchers and the number of innings guys throw this year because of how weird last year was, how few innings guys threw. And, you know, arm strength is a thing that guys are continually working on to, make, to maintain. Uh, and obviously just within the trends of baseball, we've seen starters in general just lessen the number of innings that they've pitched as a whole because of kind of the analytic sabermetric movement. But I'm very curious to see how pitchers handle the health and just generally how uh, pitchers hold up in regards to injuries over the course of the year because of the incredibly absurd circumstances uh, of the last year. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. And all eyes continue to be on the NFL draft. We're only a few weeks away again. There'll be some big announcements coming soon, ESPN Radio. I can just tell you this. All I can tell you right now is that ESPN Radio will have you covered for all three days, from the very first pick to the very last pick of the draft. ESPN Radio is a place you can hang out to get incredible expertise and analysis through all of it. Also, if you, uh, uh, while you're listening on the radio, if you also want to open up your digital, uh, the phone, uh, Twitter, YouTube, uh, Facebook, the ESPN app, uh, there will be a, an awesome mega group of people involved in the digital side. I can't tell you where I'll be yet. I can just say that uh, if you love my stuff, you'll hear me a lot. If you hate my stuff, just focus on the other people that will be working on this throughout the course of it. And don't forget, ABC and ESPN will also be broadcasting the draft. A real opportunity to get to watch it from a bunch of different angles. In the meantime, we're going to get some expertise on all things NFL, including some draft content here from one of my favorites. ESPN NFL insider Bill Barnwell joins us. Bill, thanks for the time so much, man. I'm, I'm trying to just wrap my head around the valuation of the wide receiver. He, just stick, stick with me here. Hear me up. We always say that running backs don't matter, but I feel like this is the fourth draft I've covered in a row where I'm coming out telling people that these are epic wide receivers that are coming in and you can get a wide receiver day two that can start and Jamar Chase is better than mm-hmm. CeeDee Lamb was last year. Like if, if the wide receivers are better every year, why are we not talking about devaluing the wide receiver position at the NFL level? It's a really fascinating thing because you go back three or four years, we were having the exact opposite conversation. There were a few wide receiver classes where the top of the class didn't go all that well. You had guys like, you know, John Ross not playing well, who was a top 10 pick. Corey Davis, who was good last year, but inconsistent during his time at Tennessee. Mike Williams was a top 10 pick. And, you know, again, shown flashes for sure, but wasn't like the instant impact guy like a, a Justin Jefferson was or even a C.D. Lamb was. And I think that, you know, for that three or four year run, it was, okay, what's wrong with these college wide receivers? Why aren't they coming out and making an impact in the pros? And then we've sort of since flipped almost immediately to the opposite, where we now have almost like a flood of these guys coming in who are really, really valuable from day one. And you don't even have to go for those guys in the first round. You can get them. You can get your DK Metcalf at the very end of the second round and have a superstar wide receiver by the end of his second season in the pros. So I think it just kind of comes in cycles. And I think we're in a cycle right now where there's just a lot of really really crazy talented guys coming into the league. So I think to your point, I don't think you need to get one of those guys in the top 10, but I don't think it'll be that way forever. I think this is an opportunity maybe this, this last year and this year where you can get that guy maybe in the second round. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Jason Fitz talking to Bill Barnwell, ESPN NFL insider. We're brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. So 
It, 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 my thought process is this, Bill. We've seen the need for quarterbacks to come in and be immediately successful, which means coaches are bringing more college concepts into the pros, and as a result, they're making college quarterbacks more comfortable. As a result of that, it feels like it only helps all of the college players coming out. So, you know, in this new NFL system we're living in where offenses feel more college it feels like if you're a college receiver or a college lineman even, you have a better chance of coming in day one and having success because there's not as much of a change in the process of what you're learning. Man, I, this, this is unfair. Like, you've already... That's like a, a 401 draft-level analysis. Like, I feel like you're way ahead of the curve here. I mean, you're 100% right. Like, absolutely. It's such a benefit now to have these offenses coming in where you have things that look more like what you'll see on Saturday playing out on Sunday. I'm seeing quarterbacks benefit that, like Lamar Jackson, the offense he runs is more of a college offense than I think we would have expected from most pro quarterbacks. And he's great at it. It works perfectly for Lamar Jackson. And he's capable of doing pro-style stuff and doing a very traditional drop back under center, you know, uh, throw the ball off three or five foot types of drops. And he's done that at times at Louisville as well. But, like, we're seeing, we're seeing teams now really sort of think about what their core players can do and maximize their abilities and get past the idea of, okay, well, that's something only college teams do, or that's something only, you know, that's a gimmick. We've gotten past that now. Stuff that works sticks around in the NFL. And so I think it helps those wide receivers translate better. I think it helps alignment play better. And I think it more importantly, more than anything else, helps the quarterbacks deliver more quickly than they have in years past. I mean, I was looking back at like Trent Dilfer's career. He had like 40 interceptions his first three years before kind of figuring things out. You just don't get that time anymore in the NFL. Um, and I think we're seeing teams kind of make this stuff simpler and get it, get their sort of core guys on that offense quicker. So we do see an impact from day one. And I think that's going to help those players uh, in years to come go from being a guy who was good in college to being really impressive from day one at the NFL level. Well, with that being said, Bill, college defense stinks. I mean, we all know college. Like I watch it every Saturday. I cover it. Like defense is bad in college football. But it felt like at times last year, defense was really bad in the NFL. Like, does defense still matter the same way in your mind? I mean, look at the Super Bowl, right? Like, you get the right pass rush against the right offensive line, it's going to matter a heck of a lot. Um, I, I think defense has changed. I think the idea that you're going to you know, stop a team and get a three and out every single possession, like, you know, the 85 Bears or whatever, I think that day has come and gone. But I think there are different ways to play defensive style. Like, you might say, okay, we're going to let you march up and down the field, but we're going to be great in the red zone. Or you might score on us, but we're going to go for that turnover. We're going to try and jump that quick pass. And you might, you know, break a tackle and go for 40 yards. We might catch that pass and go for six the other way. So I think it's sort of – Defenses can be more aggressive now. I think you want to get in third and long, and I think they're better in third and long than maybe they were in years past. But I do think that, um, you know, if I'm going to build a team from scratch, and I'm thinking, okay, what do I want to be good at? I want to be good at throwing the football, because that's going to end up winning you football games in the NFL in 2021. Which brings us to the greatest quarterback uh, class we've seen. I mean, all of the conversations we're having about quarterbacks. We're talking to Bill Barnwell uh, on Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz flying solo. And, you know, I'm trying to figure out how teams should be addressing the quarterback position because it feels like there's a handful of teams that have a great quarterback mm-hmm. at this point in the league. There's a handful of teams that have a really terrible quarterback. That's the easy portion of it. If you're one of the many mm-hmm. teams that has a pretty good quarterback, I'll even look at my beloved Raiders. You know, uh, if you're a team that mm-hmm. has a pretty good quarterback, and in a good year can be very good. 
how are you supposed to handle it? Because resetting at the quarterback position used to be incredibly cautious and teams didn't want to do it. Now it feels like everybody's just looking at it willy-nilly, just going all in on quarterback constantly. Yeah, I mean, the values changed because I think a couple of years ago, maybe a couple of years ago, 15 years ago, like when the Lions drafted Matthew Stafford with the first overall pick, for example, Matthew Stafford came into the NFL as the highest paid player in the history of the National Football League. So Matthew Stafford turned out to be a pretty good quarterback, but making that kind of investment from day one, that's scary. Jamarcus Russell, I don't want to pick on the Raiders, but Jamarcus Russell was a big investment from the jump at quarterback. Now, once the new CBA came in in 2011, those quarterbacks got a lot cheaper. So now instead of paying that, that rookie quarterback like he's you know, a superstar, you're paying him a fraction of what he would get on the open market. And so those guys became, went from being kind of maybe overvalued to being the most valuable players in football. And I think we're still seeing teams kind of catch up to that and how valuable those guys are. And I think for the Niners, for example, that's why they made the trade they made uh, to move up to three. Because, you know, if they get Mac Jones at three, which it seems like they might do, Mac Jones might not be a superstar. But if Mac Jones is healthy, if Mac Jones can be a productive quarterback, and if he can allow them to spend $20 million a year more on the rest of their team and not commit $25, 30000000 million a year to a Jimmy Garoppolo quarterback, well, the gap between Garoppolo and Mac Jones might not be all that big. And the gap you can get for having Trent Williams left tackle as opposed to a guy off the street, that's pretty massive. So I think you're seeing teams out try to treat quarterback as a little more fungible and a little bit more like other positions than maybe we have in years past, unless you have that just you know, transcendent Mahomes-level guy. We're talking to Bill Barnwell. Bill, I, I will ask you quickly then, what does that do for the Carolina Panthers? Because they have Sam Darnold. We know that at this point. But there's a chance the fifth-best quarterback is sitting for there for them at eight overall. How do you handle that? I think you got to take as many shots as possible. I think they are in a situation where they don't have the guy. They're hoping Sam Darnold's the guy. They were hoping Teddy Bridgewater was the guy last year. They might hope someone's available at eight. But unless you have a guy who you are 100% confident at the end of the day is your guy for the next 10 years, you've got to take as many shots as you can. And I think if the Panthers have a quarterback there at eight, even though they traded for Darnold, I think they draft a quarterback. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. I know, I know. Everybody's looking at the draft saying the top four picks are all going to be quarterbacks and five quarterbacks could be picked in the top ten. But there's one of those quarterbacks that I absolutely wouldn't touch until much, much later, and it's Trey Lance. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Jason Fitz flying solo. Uh, obviously, we're gonna get, uh, we'll get you back into the Masters, get you an update on what's going on. But with this draft conversation that's happening right now around quarterbacks and the infatuation with quarterbacks, I understand why everybody loves Trey Lance. I understand that there's a possibility Trey Lance turns out to be really, really, really good. But there's also the possibility that everybody's reaching because we're desperate for quarterbacks, ESPN Radio, by the way, presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive's Home Quote Explorer, changing the way you buy home insurance now. You can go online, get a custom quote, save both time and money. Learn more at Progressive.com. Let me make sure you understand. I root for every kid that's drafted. That's what I want, is every single kid that's drafted to have the best career possible. And I'm also quick to point out that I am risk-averse when it comes to quarterbacks. I don't love a bunch of risk. Bill Barnwell, a few minutes ago with us, said, uh, you know, the name Jamarcus Russell. Like, that still just makes me just sit down and say, right? Like, so I'm the first to admit that at times I can be overly cautious. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily always a bad thing. 
what we're talking about with Trey Lance, and so often this is what happens. We talk about athleticism and everything that it feels like makes him great uh, from, from the stance of what we love from new quarterbacks. And I understand all of that. But let's also be real about some of the limitations. I mean, it's easy to compare him from, to Carson Wentz because they both went to North Dakota State. But let's also have a little bit of, of, of memory here. Like, when I, long before I worked in sports, I was hanging out with a buddy of mine that's an agent, and he was telling me, man, everybody keeps going out. We're all competing for this kid. He's a North Dakota State. You've never heard of him, but I'm telling you, he's going to be a top three pick in the draft. He's going to make a ton of money. He's going to be a great player. Everybody wants to rep him. His name is Carson Wentz. I'm like, okay. So that was the first time I heard of Carson Wentz, years before he was drafted. Now, flash forward to Trey Lance. I was on the campus last year for uh, North Dakota State, South Dakota State. Big rivalry game, uh, two seasons ago, I should say. First time game day had ever been there to cover it. We were we did college football live from the campus. Like we're having this big, you know, incredible moment of hanging out in the Dakotas featuring this matchup. And when we were trying to decide, admittedly late in the season, if we were going to stick around for that game because schedules are really difficult for flying. As I talked to people and said, hey, should I just fly back today and get to my next spot? Like, how should I work it? Not a single person out of everybody there sat me down and said, whoa, 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 don't go anywhere. You got to see this kid, Trey Lance. Those are college football experts. Nobody was telling me during the heat of Trey Lance's only season as a starter that we should stop everything to watch him play. And that has significance to me. Okay, maybe that's not enough for you. Well, what if I give you some stats? All right. When you think about 17 career starts, that's what Trey Lance has. 17 career starts at North Dakota State University. Won all 17. 17 or no. Spectacular. Since the NFL went to 32 teams in 2002, five quarterbacks have been drafted that had seven had in the same number of starts. Mitchell Trubisky, 13 starts. How'd that work out? Dwayne Haskins, 14 starts. How'd that work out? Mark Sanchez, you could argue, had a little success for a minute. But overall... Sorry, Mark. Love the guy. Kyler Murray, we think that's worked out well. And Ryan Tannehill, who was almost a flop until the coaches saved him. Until a new spot saved him. So there's not any proof of concept on a limited number of starts that it can actually work. Okay, what about his style of play? Everybody talks about athleticism. I love athleticism. I love the concept of athleticism. But we're blowing it up like it's a huge part of how the NFL is played every single second of every single day. And I don't know that I'm willing to say that. In fact, it's not just me blowing up. Chris Ricks, uh, Florida State, former Florida State quarterback, this was his analysis on Trey Lance. Well, it's, you know, it's the athletic ability. It's the upside. It's his arm. It's, it's that dual threat that you get, right? If you want more trust, more dependability, and against the best competition in college, you go Mac Jones. If you say, you know what, my system's going to be RPOs, run pass option, getting him out of the pocket, running that zone read, uh, picking up those runs, moving the chains. I want, the, I want the, the defense to be on their heels. I want this guy to give us that dual threat in this system. Then you go Trey Lance. He's got the arm. He's got the athletic ability. He's got the moxie, confidence. Uh, you know, so I like in all the tools that he has. Again, you factor in competition, the conference he's in, one of the similarities him and Zach Wilson have, they didn't play in the SEC, the Big Ten, the ACC, uh, but again, he has that upside. You start thinking about everything you just heard, Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, Jason Fitz flying solo, about athleticism. Well, what about the numbers? What do the numbers say? Last season, and this is according to our great stats and info group, 13% of all the passes in the NFL were attempted from outside the pocket. 13%. In fact, that's the highest percentage since they started tracking the data. 
So that's a lot compared to usual. Trey Lance threw 23% of his passes outside the pocket. 23%. So you're talking about somebody whose athleticism was essentially saving him at North Dakota State? But realistically, he's not going to be able to reproduce that in any way that makes any sense in the, in the professional game. So now you have somebody that has 17 career starts, limited body of work. He's got 17 career starts at North Dakota State, so limited body of work against a level of opponent that we just don't really have the same ability to analyze. And he's done it in a way that doesn't translate to the way the game is played right now in the NFL. Man, that's reason to take Trey Lance if you don't need him for a couple of years. That's reason to take Trey Lance if you want to just see where this thing goes. If you want to go Packers on this. Maybe that's reason to take Trey Lance if you just want to you know, let him have his opportunity to get used to the way you're going to run an offense. But there's zero proof of concept that any of this is going to work. Yes. Yes, it might work. And that's what I'm rooting for. I want it to work out. But you have absolutely nothing you can look at there and rely on and say other than gut instinct. Is gut instinct what we're worried, what we're working on for, for first-round picks? You use gut instinct in the sixth round when your job's not on the line. Remember, and I think this is the undertold part of the draft every year. GMs, coaches, it's how they feed their family. Now, I know that sounds dumb and a lot of people roll their eyes, but GMs, professional scouting departments, college scouting departments, they fight for prospects they believe in. Why? It's not just because they believe in the kid. It's not just because they think the kid can play. It's because their reputation is on the line. And also, their family's on the line. We talk about coaches and the way they have to move from city to city to city. We rarely acknowledge front offices and the way they have to do oftentimes the same. You finally get a chance to be the guy that's running a franchise, and now you've got to go out and make a pick. And how you make that pick is going to be a huge part of how you're judged for years to come. Teams are rarely, uh, GMs are rarely fired because the talent isn't high enough out of the gate. They're given opportunity to go out and draft people. How many Jets fans, how many Jets fans right now are saying things are going to be different because we have Joe Douglas? So now Joe Douglas, everything relies on that second overall pick. Joe Douglas, the same person who was in the building in Philly, by the way, for the Carson Wentz pick. I mean, he became the VP of player personnel that year. But he gets the benefit of the doubt here. So that GM who has to decide that he, he feeds his family on this top five pick is now going to absolutely roll the dice? That doesn't make any sense to me. Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz, flying solo on ESPN Radio. And, you know, it's funny. I, I'm, like I said, risk averse. But I've been to Vegas a bunch of times. You all know that. That's where I was born and raised as a little kid. And, uh, you know, I'm not much of a gambler because, as Sarah points out all the time, I'm inherently cheap. But there are times in my life where I like to go dabble at, you know, the tables a little bit. Mostly I'm like a slots guy because, you know, I'm not smart enough to play table games. But I'll sit at the tables, right, and I'll, I'll dabble a little bit. Uh, not at the, like, not, not at the tables that anybody with the last name Gola can play at. No, I'm like at the, the $5 minimum um, tables. That's, that's my, my pace. You know, and there's a difference. Every once in a while, a couple times in my life, I have just, at the end of the night, when I'd had too much to drink, I let the cards stay down, I put all my chips in, and I said, we're just going to go with whatever this is. I don't want to see them, right? You can do that at the end of the night when there's nothing left to lose. Can you do that at the beginning of your vacation when you know that if you get it wrong, you're not going to have another dollar available to you for the rest of the time you're in Vegas? The answer to that is no. And that's what any GM would be doing if they turned around and they draft Trey Lance in the first five. You might get it right, but boy... If you don't get it right, not only are you setting your franchise back, 
but you're losing your job. And through all of that, you've bet on somebody simply at a gut instinct with very, very little proof of concept that fits your game. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Look, I'm the first to admit it. It, it might just be that the NBA season is long and maybe I'm losing my mind. Maybe I've just sort of lost all bearings on north and south through all of this. I just... I'm out on the nets, and I'm starting to get really worried about the Lakers. And maybe what I need is an expert to help me figure out if I've lost my mind or if I'm brilliant and three steps ahead of everybody. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Jason Fitz uh, flying solo tonight. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, and all of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. We'll get you a Masters update in a couple minutes. Make sure you're uh, aware of everything that's going on there. But I want to head straight to that Goodyear Hotline uh, to get some NBA thoughts on, you know, I'm not a hot take guy. I, I, I'm not, but it feels like the last 24 hours I've been just throwing willy-nilly all sorts of heat all over the NBA, and now I'm starting to get a little scared. Andre Snelling joins, Snellings joins us, ESPN <laughs> senior writer. Andre, man, thanks for the time. I appreciate it. And, and look, hear me out. It's not that Brooklyn's not incredibly talented. It's just, as I said yesterday, you know, continuity and chemistry has to matter, and no team with the big three has only had that big three play seven games and still gone on to win an NBA championship in that year. Like, it just feels like at some point it has to matter that the guys haven't gotten on the floor at all together. We just did this with the Clippers last year. Am I losing my mind? Should I be out on the nets at this point? No, you're not losing your mind at all. Um, you know, the Nets have as much talent on paper as any team we've seen in recent years. But as you pointed out, a lot of those first seasons of, you know, big super teams did not produce a championship, right? You know, the first year LeBron was in Miami, they didn't win. Um, you know, you, you go back to when Carl Malone and Gary Payton joined the Lakers, they didn't win, even though they had already come off of a three-peat around Kobe and Shaq. So, I mean, it's it's – it does require that you actually play the games, that the games are played on the court and, and not uh, on paper. And, and this Nets team, you know, for all of their strengths, they're also a little imbalanced, right? You know, they're a team that's got a lot of offensive skill, but there's only one ball. And it helps that, that all their guys are shooters, but it's still only one ball, and they don't really have that dominant defense to kind of go with it. And when you look at some of the teams they'll have to go through, uh, this is not going to be a cakewalk. Yeah, and some of the teams is a big part of it, Andre. Like, I'm looking at the 76ers, and I know, I'm, I guess I'm not allowed to say the Bucks until they do it in the playoffs, but <laughs> come on, like, it, it feels like they should both be at least in the conversation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was uh, talking about that tonight um, in a meeting I just got off of. It's like, people feel like the Bucks are almost like a dirty word. The same with Giannis and the MVP race, you know. All of the other MVP favorites have gotten injured over the last few weeks, but nobody even mentions Giannis because after they, they came up short the last two years, it, it just feels like, well, you know, we can't really make him the MVP three years in a row, right? And, and the same with the Bucks; They've lost the last couple of years, but people, I think, really sleep on how big of a difference Drew Holiday can make and the fact that the Bucks have quietly changed the way they play both offense and defense to counter some of the things that, that were used against them in the past. And so I look at the Bucks and I feel like if, if they're fully healthy, you know, like, they, like Giannis has a little knee issue right now and, and uh, P.J. Tucker, you know, he, he hasn't been playing. But if they're fully healthy and the Nets are fully healthy, everybody is, is, is back, I feel like that's a straight-up series. You know, like it could really go either way. And I'm not sure the Bucks shouldn't be the favorite. Well, I mean, A, didn't Budenholzer have to make some adjustments given the amount of pressure? And then B, can we imagine just for a second if Twitter had existed when Michael Jordan was trying to figure out how to get through the Pistons? Like, I'm not sure we ever would have given him the patience to do it. 
Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's very true. And, you know, like the last couple of years with the Bucks, I mean, they had the best record in the NBA both seasons, right? I feel like two seasons ago was kind of a perfect storm. Like that, that Raptors team with, with, with Kawhi and Marcus Gasol and Serge Ibaka and Pascal Siakam, they had four just elite defensive big men to, to implement that wall off the paint against Giannis strategy. And it kind of like pushed them to a standstill. And then, I don't know, people don't remember, Fred Van Vliet hit like, 15 threes out of maybe 19 attempts um, over a three-game series, I mean, over a three-game stretch to, to kind of put the Raptors on top. But the Bucks were right there with them. Last season, you know, they, they had lost some, some things. They, you know, they, they had lost Brogdon, and, and, and their backcourt just wasn't strong enough, and they were relying too much on Giannis. And so the Heat were able to take advantage of that. This season, Drew Holiday is a monster. You know, like, like every – in the regular season over the last few years, Bledsoe's been pretty good, but he's fallen off in the playoffs. Holiday tends to get better in the playoffs, and he's better than Bledsoe in the regular season. And, and you can't sleep on DiVincenzo either. So their backcourt, Chris Middleton, is averaging a career high in assists. They're doing more to take the pressure off Giannis. And if you look at second spectrum, Giannis is shooting better than last season from everywhere on the court. You know, his post-ups are producing more offense. His, um, you know, if he runs the pick and roll, it's producing more offense. So the, the Bucks' offense is just much more well-rounded now than it's been the last couple seasons. And, and so once they get to the playoffs, it, it should be a lot more translatable. We're talking to Andre Snelling's NBA senior writer on Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz flying solo. And so let's go to the other side of it because I've been saying every single week, none of this matters in the West. The, as long as AD and LeBron are healthy, the Lakers are going to be just fine. But then I guess I just had this like epiphany today as I look at it and I think, well, there is at least the shot that somehow this thing, because of injury, goes so far off the rails that they're in the play-in tournament. And if that happens, they could catch Utah in the first round. Like, are we really willing to say that AD and LeBron come back and they have no problem with Utah, the best team in the conference throughout the course of the regular season? If AD and LeBron are 100% healthy, they should come out of the West. Um, you know, Utah is strong. The Suns, you know, are strong. We, we saw their matchup last night. The Clippers are a little bit more under the radar. They were kind of like last year's Nets, right? The team that came together and yeah. then, you know, didn't quite deliver what people thought. And, and kind of like Milwaukee this season, people aren't really talking about the Clippers, but they're a really strong team. But if the Lakers are full, if LeBron and Anthony Davis are fully healthy, the Lakers, in my opinion, are just a, a cut above all of the teams in the West. They would prefer, I'm sure, not to have to play the Jazz in the first round and, and, and go through the gauntlet. But if they had to, I, I would still pick them as the team. The question then is just health. Um, when Davis got injured, his injury – was was kind of tricky. Um, I did an article with Stefania Bell, um, who's like you know uh, injury expert for for ESPN. She normally does football, but but she works with the NBA as well. And um, she was pointing out how the calf injury he had was an acute injury, but the tendinosis he had in his Achilles was a chronic injury. And they they required two different types of treatment. And so, you know, her sense was that he could get back to full speed at some point. But, you know, for me, it's not a full given. So that's the question mark for me with the Lakers. But if, if Davis is healthy, if LeBron is healthy, I, I think they're still the team. I don't know how Stefania does that, by the way. The number of times she just talks about, like, wounds and injuries, I, I just, I'm not thick-skinned enough for any of it. I just I, I, oh, yeah. I, yeah, I, she, I shake the whole the time. 
All right, so, you know, I, I'm a big believer in the sports gods. Like, they just sit up there and they, they sort of interfere with everything. And like you said earlier, I mean, we forget Van Vliet just came in and, and destroyed everybody. Like, the sports gods wanted Toronto. So if the sports gods, if the, if the basketball gods look down and say, what we really want is Milwaukee versus the Clippers in the NBA final instead of Brooklyn versus the Lakers, how disappointed do you think the league, like the, the NBA heads around the world will be if we don't get what we all want this year? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean that, that that's real because as far as cachet, the the Nets and the Lakers, it, it's hard to top that. You know, all of the the glitz and glamour and stars and MVPs all in one spot. So in that sense, I think people might be a little disappointed. But I actually have really wanted to see LeBron and Giannis go heads up in the finals. You know, I feel like that's the best of the current generation and the best of the upcoming generation, both still at pretty close to the peak of their powers. So that's the match. I personally would like to see. But I'll throw out this one other little tidbit. You know, um, the year before the Raptors won a championship, uh, when, when ESPN's writers did an article on what trades should be made, I wrote that the Raptors should trade uh, DeRozan for Kawhi Leonard. The trade happened. They won the championship. This offseason, when we did that same article, I wrote that the Bucks should trade for Drew Holiday. Drew Holiday's here. We'll see if history repeats itself. Oh, look at that. And look, I'm going to say till I'm blue in the face. If Giannis goes out in this particular year in this environment and wins the championship, it would be the great moment for the NBA of, hey, stay where you were drafted. You can do it. You don't have to be on a super team and you don't have to be in a big market to do it. Like, it'd be a great story in my mind. Exactly. Andre, yeah, man, it'd be feel good in an era where things are often going the other direction. And it would give a lot of people the sense that, that, you know, if you're a Phoenix fan, you'd look at it and say, hey, there's our hope. We can do it just like they did it. Uh, Andre, thanks for the time, man. I love your writing. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate it. All right. I appreciate it. Hopefully you'll have me back. Heck yeah. NBA senior writer Andre Snelling's there uh, with a great uh, deep dive. And uh, I just tweeted out, uh, retweeted an article that they've got out there where the insiders look at some of the different uh, question marks facing the Lakers and Nets. That's out on ESPN.com. You want to make sure that you check it out. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Holy cow, Justin Rose put on a show today. All right, so Justin Rose, absolutely. This fourth time in Rose's career, he had at least a share of the 18-hole lead at the Masters. That's tied with Jack for the most of all time. Uh, But he started incredibly slow, and that's significant here. I mean, when you start talking about uh, his ability to get underneath at this point, and he is by far at this point, uh, he's by far the leader. He looks like seven under with a four-stroke lead. Uh, so far uh, over a couple of different people. So uh, seven under for somebody that was two over uh, after a few holes. So absolutely great work by Justin Rose getting himself uh, underneath. And uh, by the way, it um, uh, looks like we have some, uh, yes, we have some sound on this. So this is, a, this is some analysis on Justin Rose and what really helped him today. I didn't know where my game was coming into this week, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I had a month off, haven't played competitive golf for, for a good four weeks, and I've been working hard, and, you know, I could have probably played the last two tournaments, but you know, I've really been trying to prepare hard for this Masters, and been working on my game, been seeing a lot of improvement on the range, and my coach, Sean, said, listen, buddy, I don't know if you're close, I just know it's better. Right. So that's, that's where I came into today, and obviously the, the, the start was slow, but... A little bit of experience kicked in, knowing that this is a tough day out here. And uh, being two over through seven, I just knew if I could keep it around even par for the day, decent day's work. 
And that's obviously Justin Rose talking about uh, what he thought gave him a little bit of an advantage today. Matches some of what Marty said yesterday as we talked to Marty Smith, and he said experience would matter. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, ESPN Radio presented by Progressive Insurance. You can say big when you bundle your auto, home, motorcycle, RV, or boat insurance. Visit Progressive.com, Jason Fitz flying solo. And look, this is what's remarkable to me. Justin Rose goes out and has just an epic, epic day. A day where he falls apart in the beginning. Absolutely, everything's going wrong. And then all of a sudden, everything starts going right. So you're talking about somebody that after seven holes was two over, and after uh, 18 finishes at seven under. Think about that. He goes from two under, two over to seven under. And are we talking about it? Do we know him? Does he have that sort of resonance? This is the exact thing we were talking about yesterday when I talked about what golf needs. And it's in fairness, we constantly try and fix Major League Baseball, as we said earlier in tonight's show. Like Maybe, maybe Major League Baseball is handling that. Maybe they are finally getting some sort of uh, a handle on how to better market their stars. But, I mean, realistically, as, as great as the story is today that Justin Rose is 7-under, if you don't really know golf, if you are just sidelined, just a casual fan, you wouldn't know Justin Rose by face if he came up and hit you in the no-no places with his golf club. Like, there is a lack of recognizability for so many of these stars. And that comes down to the sport. That comes down to the sport at the end of the day. Like, I'm not going to fault the athlete for not being out there. Like, not every person wants, myself included, God. Like, if I didn't have to have social media for work, I'm not sure I would. I, I, I would love to just absolutely not have to ever be uh, show that part. Like, I, I'm good to just be quiet uh, when I'm not working, and then when I'm at work, just talk about sports. So I, I'm not going to fault an athlete for not wanting to go out and brand himself and be essentially an ambassador, an influencer. I'm going to fault the sport. Because everybody that has a shot should be marketed in such a way that everybody's talking about them. Now, one of the things I said yesterday that I think impacts golf is the fact that most of us don't grow up just being able to go out, grab a club, and hit some balls. I mean, you, you grow up in an area where you can just go grab a basketball and you can you know, shoot some hoops. You can grab a football and you're in the street with your buddies screaming, game on, game off. Car. You're not doing that with golf. So already... In my mind, golf's going to be behind the eight ball because you're not standing in the street throwing the ball screaming that you're Tom Brady. You're not taking a shot against air, getting fouled by nobody, and screaming that you're Michael Jordan. Like You don't have the opportunity to emulate uh, these greats. So it becomes even more difficult for the sport to market the greats. But uh, Realistically, right now, Brian Harmon, tied for second. Hideki Matsuyama, tied for second. Justin Rose, in first. How many of you guys are just absolutely, right now, if you're not a big uh, golf fan, how many of you even know who these guys are? How many of you know who they, what they look like? Jordan Spieth right now, tied for eighth. You have to start scrolling down to get the names that we've all been talking about, the names that we're trying to get everybody sort of in love with. It's not easy to do. and I know the Tiger effect, and I understand that we talk about Tiger too much. But again, Knowing the Tiger's coming off the accident, and it's been uh, reported by multiple sites that the accident was speed-related, if Tiger Woods decided right now he was going to hold a press conference to talk to everybody about uh, his accident, what would get more eyeballs in conversation? Would we be talking more about the golfers playing, or would we be talking more about Tiger? We all know the answer to that. That's a problem for golf. In my mind, that's a problem for the Masters. The Masters already has an issue 
you know, when you didn't get one last year for so much of the year, I would contend today that the Masters should have last fall skipped the tournament altogether. It would have made this Masters feel more special, and it would have prevented the Masters from essentially being overrun by every other sporting event in the fall. They could have protected their brand a little bit if they had instead chosen to give themselves the opportunity uh, to just wait. Think about the hype we would be feeling today if there hadn't been a Masters at all last year. Think about the hype we'd be feeling if suddenly we were getting our first shot at seeing these guys play. That's not the way it worked out. They decided to do the Masters in the fall, and because of that, now we're already back there. Now, the NBA dealt with a little bit of fatigue and fairness at the beginning of their season as well. But at least the NBA has a a large fan base that knows the personalities well enough to know what they're going to be watching. The NBA fan might be checked out on the regular season like we've been talked about all night, but they're not going to check out on the the playoffs. They're not going to check out on Brooklyn taking on the Lakers if that's the final we get. Not going to check out on that at all. The casual fan is going to watch that. The NBA will get people to gravitate back. Why? Because it's not about the product, it's about the personality. And as much as we love Bryson DeChambeau, and as much as we love sort of the cockiness of, yeah, I practice when I want to practice, I hit the ball really far, I get out there, like he reminds everybody of their buddy that just shows up and is better at everything than they are. He's got to go out there and produce for people to care. And then golf's got to market for people to care. If you missed the interview earlier tonight, we talked to June Lee, and one of the smart things that we talked about, Major League Baseball writer at ESPN, is the fact that the young generation of stars for Major League Baseball are finally breaking some of the unwritten rules. But a small part of that article that's a big deal is that Major League Baseball is figuring out how to promote them and how to use social media for them. There are young golfers that are out there that are worth paying attention to that have great personalities that we're all gravitating to. But unfortunately, until golf figures out a way to, uh, to sort of advertise that to absolutely everybody involved in the process, I'm not sure what this gravitates to. Today, something special happened in the Masters. And the fact that most of us don't know who did it or what it really means is a problem for the sport. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. I'm still excited about a championship. So we're going to head over to the Goodyear hotline. We are joined by a champion, Maceo Teague, Baylor superstar. Uh, Maceo, thanks so much for the time, man. Let's start with the obvious. You're a national champion. So give me the moment when the clock hits zero, you look up like, what's the first thing going through your mind when you know you finally got it done? Man, you know, it was just an incredible feeling. I, I couldn't describe the situation with one specific uh, feeling, but it, it was just incredible. You know, uh, it was it, all of our hard work. It came to uh, it, it just seemed like it proved off and uh, paid off in that moment. And uh, we were just really ecstatic. Is there any extra sweetness knowing that last year there was no tournament? You guys really felt like you had that opportunity to win a championship then. Is there some sort of like vindication through this process for that as well? Certainly, because, you know, uh, we just felt like we had the best chance to win the national title last year. Uh, We were ranked number one in the country for most of the year. And uh, we just felt like it was our tournament to lose last year the same way it was our tournament to lose this year. I'm trying to start some like internal uh, you know, fire here. We had King McClure on yesterday and love King. And, you know, he said he, he's made it clear like Gonzaga ended his college career. So afterwards, I saw all the pictures of King getting to hang out with everybody. Was there just like a little extra uh, kick in the step knowing that it was Gonzaga you guys beat? I'm, I was happy that uh, that we beat. I was happy that we won the game first of all. But second of all, I was happy that we beat Gonzaga because they uh, ended like King's career. They uh, had never beat Gonzaga. I think we were 0 4 all time against Gonzaga. So it, it just really felt good. Um, just winning the game in general for me. We're talking to Macy Oteague, national champion for Baylor on Spain and Fitz. Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. So 
A couple of things here. I talked to you a couple of months ago as you were in the thick of the college basketball season and found out that you are uh, you consider yourself the greatest Uno champion in the world. So now that you've got this little national championship out of the way, is your Uno game back? Like, uh, you know, are you are you ready to get a little more focus on that? Like, how's how's the Uno? How did it end up as the season finished? I think the only the only person I lost to in Uno was Jackson Moffat. I only played him one time, so he beat me once. But uh, he lost to everyone else, I believe, so his record wasn't that great. I, I beat LJ, I beat Mark, I beat Jared, uh, I beat Davion, I beat Obim. Like I beat everybody on the team. I only played Jackson once. I mean, he he's, he's 1-0 against me, but he's got an awful record against everybody else. So I'm still keeping my title as the best Uno player in the world. You know what I love about this, Macy? I was like, when I've talked to you about it, you get so fired up about Uno. Like, that's what I love about it. Like, you were, you, you had that champion fire over Uno. And I, look, I get it. You know, uh, the other thing you're always fired up about, you know, is fashion, right? So you're playing in a national championship game. Like, what was your sort of consideration into what you were going to wear and how you were going to look for that? So I planned on wearing, did you see my outfit? That's the question. Did yeah. you see it? Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, I planned on wearing, um, but I actually, I didn't know what I was going to wear for the national championship game. But I was looking at the weather and the way that things were. I was like, okay, I got to uh, warm. I got to wear something uh, because it's cold. It's cold again. This game is cold. But one of the games, it was actually hot. And it was so hot that I, we played during the day. I think it was when we played Villanova. Um, like, it was probably like 77, 78 degrees with, the, with just sunshine out. And I'm like, you can't wear pants to the game with a long sleeve. So I had to wear uh, just the shorts to the game, so I wasn't prepared. So that left me um, with the – with the call God uh, hoodie that I wore to the national championship game. And uh, I actually had another hoodie that I could have worn, but I said, nah, you got to save this for the national championship. Uh, this, this is a statement going into the game. So uh, that's the reason I wore it, uh, just to make a statement. Just uh, It's like a confidence builder for myself, kind of like a mental game. And what I love about it, though, is like everything you wear, you wear so just like confidently, right? Like it's, it's part of your swag. And so for that outfit now, does it get set aside? Like do you, do you put that in a box somewhere as part of your national championship memories? Uh, no, I'm probably going to wear that again soon, man. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, we won a national championship today. I wore it, but hey, I paid good money for that, and I'm going to wear it as many times as I can. Amen to that. Macy Teague joining us, Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz, hanging out with him uh, solo tonight. So, Maceo, uh one thing that I, I have talked to King about, I want to get your perspective on. Like, obviously, there's a history at Baylor and, and a lot that happened long before you guys were ever there. And King was pretty honest that when he came to play there, that wasn't something he really uh, took into consideration or even knew about. Like, it's about a new chapter. So it feels like there's been such a massive reset to who Baylor is as a university. Right now, if you were talking to kids and trying to tell them who Baylor is moving forward, what is sort of the, the identity of that program? The identity of Baylor, uh, we got some dogs. Uh, we got we got a lot of players on the team who feel like they've been overlooked, and even guys on the team who may have not been overlooked, but they feel like uh, like they're just as good as guys on the floor. Like LJ, he's, um, he doesn't play much, but he's a really good basketball player. He might feel that he's overlooked, but uh, he understands that it's guys in front of him. He has to wait his turn. But he competes at a high level every day in practice trying to get us better and iron sharpens iron. So uh, you just, I would say that Baylor, the university, has just got a team full of dogs who are willing to do whatever they uh, need to do to win. So what's next for you, Macy? Obviously you now have a national championship. What, what's your next plan? Uh, I still got to figure that out. I still have to talk uh, things over with my family and just see what the best situation for me will be going forward. Well, in the meantime, Maceo, like I'm so happy to see this happen for you, and it's been such a wild ride getting there in a COVID year, like where everything was st- start and stop, and everything felt so strange. What was the hardest part for you guys as a team coming together in that kind of a year? 
So I would say the hardest thing was that we didn't get to spend as much time with each other together, uh, especially during the beginning of the year. They kicked us out of, well, we weren't allowed in the locker room. There was only a certain amount of guys in the facilities at a time, so it would probably be like four guys in the facilities at once. And then uh, once your workout was over with, you had to leave. And uh, it was just things like that. Uh, it just really kind of bothered me because we had a team where after practice or after workouts and guys were getting up shots, like it was a team where guys just didn't leave the locker room right away. A like guy sat in the locker room, talked sometimes for an hour, just in there just playing around and things of that nature. But uh, because of COVID, we didn't really get this uh, chance to spend as much time with each other. And that, that really bothered me some this year. But uh, we are, we had so much chemistry and uh, just so much connection that it, it didn't hurt us winning the national championship. Macy, I think that's one of the really cool things about your team because you guys have been together for a while and because there is this sort of camaraderie around Baylor. Like, How much did the fact that you guys have that history together really help you in the tournament specifically? I think it helped us a lot. Uh, everybody knew what, uh, what we like to do going forward. Uh, you see it, some of the one-and-done schools like Kentucky, uh, Duke, Michigan State, I don't really consider them to be a one-and-done school, but I mean, they lost players last year, I believe. But uh, schools that had a lot of people come to their school this year and a lot of new guys to their program, they really didn't start well this year because they didn't get the summer to really practice as a team, really get the summer to uh, build chemistry and see what other guys uh, got like to do on the floor. But Baylor, we lost uh, two players who played a lot last year and one guy who uh, didn't play, but uh, we lost two of our main players on the floor and everybody else came back. So we just had a ton of chemistry uh, going forward this past season. Maceo, anytime you win something massive, it, you get congratulations from random places. Was there any one tweet or text or congratulations you got that really opened your eyes? Uh, no, not necessarily. I probably have some of my messages, but I still haven't opened. I still got like 400 messages I still need to open. And it's actually been <laughs> kind of overwhelming trying to uh, respond to everyone. But uh, I'm, I'm doing my best. So if anybody's hearing this, I, just, I might get back to you in three weeks, but don't worry. I'm, I'm trying my best to get back to people. That is a message that needs repeating early and often, by the way. Like, after these big life events, people always get hurt when you don't text them right back. And you're like, hey, I had a little bit of things going on. Like, I don't know if you know that. Maceo, congrats, dude. Like, it's always a blast talking to you. I do want to play you Uduno sometime because I'm, I'm fairly confident that I can beat you. Like, but, but either way, uh, I appreciate you coming on the show, man. Congratulations on the championship. Can't wait to see what's next for you, my friend. All right, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take it easy. See, I got the easy advantage with Maceo. Like, if he beats me, then I'll just say I let him win because I want him to keep coming on the show. And if I beat him, then I can just mercilessly trash talk him forever. I've got this great advantage in my back pocket when it comes to trash talking because I don't ever go to the sports side of my life when I trash talk. I go to the fiddle side. So, like, you know, I always tell people, you're going to have to tell people you were beat by a fiddle player. Like, that's just not – there's no street cred in that at all. So, like, you know, I get all the the credit saying I beat Maceo and Uno, and then what's he get to say? Like, I beat some fiddle guy in Uno? Like, there's no – there's no street cred in that. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. I'm Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. And the real question that you got to ask yourself right now is what's important for NBA fans and for NBA franchises? Is it about relevance or championships? Two very different conversations. Hear me out. Championships, obviously, are what we've become, especially in the NBA world, we become just dominated by. If you can't win at all, then nobody gives a damn. Right. If you're Giannis Antetokounmpo and you have back-to-back MVPs but your team doesn't do well enough in the playoffs and suddenly nobody wants to talk about you anymore. It's a bad word to say Bucks. If I try and go in now and make a compelling argument to most NBA fans about the Bucks or even analysts about the Bucks and why they can do well, what's the answer going to be? Well, they haven't done it in the playoffs before. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me that it always becomes about just one thing. 
championships, right? And in fact, we don't see it the, the same way. Like I saw Stephen A. the other day talking about the Packers and you know the pressure on Aaron Rodgers, and he sat there and said, "Well, if Aaron Rodgers doesn't win another Super Bowl, it's not his fault." Oh my God! Have you ever applied that same logic in the NBA? It might be refreshing to suddenly come in and look at the NBA from some angle other than just about championships. That being said, the other angle is about relevance. See, uh, teams are constantly fighting for the opportunity, not necessarily to be a championship team, just to be relevant in the playoff conversation. I mean, the Mavericks are a team that, you know, they don't have to win it every year. We're going to talk about them. As long as they have Luka, we're going to talk about them. I mentioned that the Pelicans have, you know, arguably the generational player, right? Zion coming in doing things that are absolutely astounding. Well, it's not making them championship worthy, but at least it's making them relevant. And that's a step forward. The Trailblazers aren't really on most people's minds for a championship caliber team most years, but at least they're constantly in the conversation. And that's what it's all about sometimes is just being in the conversation. But at what point does it become maddening knowing that you're in the conversation almost in a pity way? Right? Like, it's almost like, oh, that's cute. You know, when I go in and try and do most things, like I tried to run the 40. You know, I did my my NFL scouting exercises while uh, Mike Golick Jr. filmed me. Everybody laughed about it for months afterwards. It was a cute effort. You know, it's one of those, oh, that's fun. Right? But uh, realistically, nobody's taking it seriously. Well, I understand that. But there's a difference between downplaying my athleticism and downplaying the Utah Jazz. There's a difference between downplaying what's being accomplished for most people and then what's being accomplished by the best teams in your conference. I mean, this is great analysis from Tim Legler on what is making the Suns so special. Check it out. There's a lot of reasons for their success. We talk about Paul and Booker. But other guys, Mikael Bridges taking a big step forward. DeAndre Ayton's a better player. Cameron Johnson is a better player. They added Jay Crowder, another veteran guy who played in the finals a year ago. So you can't say enough about veteran leadership. Who cares? That's the real, I mean, like, I, I mean, let's just be real for a second. Who cares? If it's only about championships and that's all we're allowed to talk about in the NBA culture, which is what it's become, uh, not just from us in the media, but even from players, if it's only about winning it all, then who cares about everything Phoenix did to get to this point? Because we all know as cute as it is, it's not going to result in an NBA championship. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, Jason Fitz flying solo. I mean, if we're in a spot where suddenly, no matter what Phoenix does, we all know if you had to bet your house on it, all right, the Lakers just pummel. The, the Lakers just get they, they get killed. They fall apart. They find themselves in the play-in tournament. And then just like 80s wrestling, Hulk Hogan, you lift the arm, falls once. You lift the arm, falls twice. Lift the arm right before it hits the mat the third time. AD and LeBron come back healthy. The arm is shaking. It rises up. All you've done is made Hulk mad. Now the Hulk known as the Lakers gets themselves in to the NBA playoffs. And all of a sudden they are just going to demolish the Suns. They're just going to demolish the Jazz. They've come together. This feels really fitting, by the way, on WrestleMania weekend. They've come together, and all of a sudden, LeBron goes from one rope to the next rope and drops the big leg on the nets, and they go down. It's a great story. But it reminds you of how irrelevant this entire conversation is about the NBA during the regular season, then. What the hell's the point? If you're a Suns fan, what are you rooting for? If you're a Jazz fan, what are you rooting for? Like That's why I want to see just, I, I'm, I'm craving watching Milwaukee do this. I am craving the opportunity for Milwaukee to change the narrative because if Milwaukee can say, hey, you can, you can raise them here, you can keep them here, and you can win championships with them here, now all of a sudden everybody has hope. 
Because right now there there isn't any hope. If you're a Phoenix fan, you're not getting a bunch of hope out of, of watching this season at 36 and 14. You're having fun. You're having fun week in and week out. You know, and there's something to that. You're, you're having a good time watching your team be competitive, and I, I, I love that. But we all know that it's not for the purpose of a championship. Now, in the NFL, it's just about making the playoffs. I don't care what anybody tells you. The N- and the NFL system is really stacked in a way where it's not about the best team. We don't root for the best team to win the championship in the NFL. We never do. An undefeated uh, Patriots team will go to the Super Bowl, and we're all finding a way to root for them to lose, right? We don't want the best team to win the championship. We don't, that's boring in, in, in the NFL. And like I said, you have national pundits that will excuse quarterbacks for not winning Super Bowls because it's not their fault. The team didn't do the right things. That doesn't exist in the NBA. No, sir. In the NBA, if you're James Harden and you have a miraculous, incredible career, but all you do is get to the Western Conference Final completely over and over and over again, suddenly it becomes part of the narrative that you can't win. Not that your team can't win. Again, Packers don't win, not not Aaron Rodgers' fault. Rockets don't win, definitely Harden's fault. I mean, Westbrook, all he, all he did was average a triple-double, and we're like, yeah, but you can't win a championship. Dan Marino never got a Super Bowl, but not his fault. Oh, the Dolphins didn't do enough to put the talent around Dan. Never got him a running game. Never had a good enough defense. Always somebody else's fault. But in the NBA, oh, no, sir. Oh, no. If Giannis goes out there and has the career, if he has the same year he had last year, every year for the rest of his career, but doesn't win an NBA championship, we will find a way to devalue his career. And as a result, we now devalue any franchise that has success that doesn't end in a championship. So teams have to make a decision. They're at a crossroads. What do you do? Do you build the right way? Do you build patiently? Do you go in and and establish this young core and bring in good players around? Do you do exactly what Phoenix did? Because it makes you good enough to have a very relevant regular season, knowing full well that if AD and LeBron are healthy, you're going down. You're done. And even if miraculously you turn around and you beat the Lakers, then they'll say, don't stand a chance against the Clippers. Like, there's just no point. How many people are looking back at what the Nuggets did last year and giving it any credit coming into this year? You know, Donovan Mitchell needs to be a bigger star. We're constantly looking at the NBA through this this spectrum that makes me wonder what we really want. Because if you're a fan of a team, or if you're a team, you run a team, you're looking at it saying, well, we don't have a shot at getting LeBron here. We don't have a shot of getting Anthony Davis here. So what do we have a shot for? Well, I guess what we can do is try and build a good core, try and work them up, try and make sure the team's pretty good, try and make sure that we're relevant enough to sell seats to stadiums so that we make some money, but we're not really here to win a championship. That's the hardest part of what we're seeing this year because what we're seeing is a Utah team and a Phoenix team that are worth rooting for. We're seeing a 76ers team that's worth keeping an eye on. We're, we're seeing a Bucks team that absolutely is worth watching. But we also all know at the end of the day that if health isn't a factor, if everybody's healthy at once, Vegas and most analysts are going to tell you the same thing. You're looking at Brooklyn taking on the Lakers. And if that's the case, then everybody else this year that's been trying to find a way, if health isn't an issue, all they've been doing is twiddling your thumbs. Imagine training for a marathon your entire life, waiting for the opportunity to run it, 
and the difference between when you run it knowing that the only chance you have to win is if the actual marathon champions get hurt along the way, Like that's a much different approach to how you analyze all the success and failure. That's the problem that the NBA has right now because there are good teams that we simply won't pay attention because to because we know at the end of the day, championships are all anybody's going to care about. And there are only three or four teams max that had even a reasonable chance at a championship. And most of us would tell you that those best teams are not the teams currently at the top of the standings. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.